This is Dialogue with Drake and Dubu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Our topic for today is sexual violence and PEI. For our listeners, please be advised that we will be covering triggering content around sexual assault, rape, and other forms of violence against women. Should you require support or counseling services, the PEI Rape and Sexual Assault Center can be reached at 902-566-1864, that's 902-566-1864, between the hours of 8.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. To begin, the University of Prince Edward Island Sexual Violence Prevention and Response Office defines sexual assault as the following. Any sexual contact made by a person towards another where consent is not first obtained. It is characterized by a broad range of sexual acts carried out in circumstances in which the person has not freely consented or is incapable of consenting to sexual activity. Under the Criminal Code of Canada, it has been interpreted as an actual or threatened advance, gesture, touch, or any other sexual act to which a person has not consented. It includes a person being forced to perform sexual acts against their will. It is determined by a lack of consent and not by the act itself. According to Statistics Canada, as of 2019, one in three women, that's 32%, and one in eight men, that's 13%, experienced unwanted sexual behavior in public. For both men and women, younger age and sexual orientation increase the odds of experiencing this behavior more than any other factor. More specifically, being younger and of a sexual orientation other than heterosexual was associated with much higher odds. More than 11 million Canadians have been physically or sexually assaulted since the age of 15 This represents 39% of women and 35% of men 15 years of age or older in Canada, with the gender difference driven by a much higher prevalence of sexual assault among women than men. This is a percentage of 30% for women versus 8% for men. From statistics like these, we understand that sexual violence disproportionately impacts women, black folks, people of color, indigenous peoples, and 2S LGBTQ plus folks. And additionally, when looking through an intersectional lens, folks from numerous groups are even more likely to experience sexual violence. In fact, it is estimated that 57% of indigenous women have experienced sexual violence. Alarmingly, over 20% of survivors feel the blame of the act of violence gets placed on them as opposed to the perpetrators. This is one of the many contributing factors to the low percentage of cases of sexual violence that actually get reported. Indeed, we estimate that only six out of 100 cases get reported or that 94% remain unreported every year. Now, PEI is no stranger to sexual violence or the traumatic impacts it makes on individuals, families, and communities. Here to talk with us today is a gardening enthusiast, cat mom, academic, lover of cider, feminist, 
and the executive director of the PEI Rape and Sexual Assault Center, Dr. Rachel Crowder. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about gender-based violence on PEI. Our first very important question to you is, how are you? I am doing okay. Um, you know, when people ask me how I am, I take that quite seriously because um, at the PEI Rape and Sexual Assault Center, we really work on ensuring the well-being of everyone that works there because the work that we do is so difficult. Um, and so well-being is a thing that we take very seriously. And so I'm doing a little self-care today. I'm working in my potting shed and I'm working with seedlings and, you know, cultivating growth. And that always um, uh, builds my resilience and my se a sense of optimism for the future. So I'm doing very well. Thank you. Wow, that is such a well thought out answer to such a simple question. I think we're both very appreciative of that. Uh, yes. Now, you know, you mentioned you work at the PI Rape and Sexual Assault Center. Um, you're the executive director there. Can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and the work that you do? I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, Swat, I've only been there for just over two years now. Um, and so before that period, I can only draw on what history I know of the organization. Um, and so the PEI Rape and Sexual Assault Center was created or formed in 1982. Mm -hmm. And uh, in its present um, form, let's say, we're focusing right now on, on individual and group therapy for mm -hmm. survivors age 16 and over of all genders. Um, survivors of sexualized uh, violence and survivors of child sexual abuse. And so um, we have a, a, a request line that folks can call in on mm -hmm. and, uh, and request uh, counseling services. Uh, we're also um, increasing our reach with other programs that we're starting and um, we'll continue to do that. I think over the next uh, number of years as we are consolidating some funding from um, other um, funding agencies like Women and Gender Equality Canada. So we may also, and I don't want to, you know, nix anything by, by saying anything as if it's a sure thing, but uh, it looks like it's almost a sure thing that we will be doing some work with Women's Network PEI on uh, piloting some promising practices with um, underserved populations mm. of survivors on Prince Edward Island that we're really excited about. And uh, we're also uh, in, the, in the process of um, uh, doing the last pieces of our Braiding Sweetgrass program, which is uh, specifically with Indigenous survivors um, on Prince Edward Island. In addition to that, we do advocacy work, uh, public education. Mm -hmm. uh, I sit on several committees in the, com in the community that have to do with gender-based violence um, and, and on one national committee or organization rather called Ending Violence Association Canada which uh, is comprised of the executive directors and others that are in frontline services with mm. survivors of gender-based violence. And we're really looking at the bigger systemic pieces around gender-based violence, um, sort of nationally, institutionally, and with big, big organizations like mm. policing, military, government. Mm. 
um, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, my job involves everything from, uh, you know, grassroots frontline, right up to uh, systemic work nationally. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I feel like I speak on behalf of both Sweda and I and Islanders. I think we've been so lucky to have Pearsack around since 1982. And I think just the evolution of um, the organization and staffing and capacity. And um, as you said, uh, therapy, one-on-one, education, advocacy, it's, it's I think, been really valuable to, to everyone in the community. Um, and over Thank the you, last... Emma. Oh, no, no worries at all. I, I think that's it's lucky when we could point to wonderful community organizations such as Pearsack and, and the awesome work that they're doing. And I really have to tip my hat to to the therapists that are, are working with our organization as well. They really are the heart and soul of what we do. And uh, so I just want to acknowledge that. And also to say, because I, I neglected to say so, that... Um, we serve uh, Islanders from Charlottetown, Summerside, as well as Alberton, and uh, and and we also work, um, you know, within the healthcare system too to uh, make sure that Islanders are getting the best uh, emergency um, sexual assault services uh, that we we can, and so that was that's another uh, area where. Um, uh, I've been sitting on committees to to uh, uh, work on the enhanced emergency sexual assault services on PEI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting too because I think um, over the last number of years, particularly in the last um, I would say six or seven or so years. Um, the realm of sexual violence and discussions being had around it have really evolved exponentially. And especially when we kind of reflect on the history of Pearsack and its presence since 1982, um, one report from Statistics Canada reported that there was a 122% increase in the number of level one sexual assaults, which for our listeners, this could cover anything from inappropriate touching uh, to rape without serious injury. Um, and so that that was between 2014 and 2019. This is the highest increase in Canada, you know, in our history. Is this a figure that is surprising to you? Um, it, it is and it isn't. Um, surprising, I suppose, in, in the way that um, it looks like a huge number. I mean, that means it's more than doubled, right, over that period of time. Uh, not surprising given the context in which that has happened. And the context being things like the Me Too movement um, and, um, and COVID has also had, had an effect on the number of um, folks that are coming forward. So, uh, you know, I've been asked this several times, you know, does it mean that there are more sexual assaults being committed or are there just more people coming forward to report. And that's a very difficult question to answer. But anecdotally, I would say it's the latter rather than the former. It's more people are coming forward. Because as the Me Too movement illustrated that once that silence is broken in the community, and the stigma starts to become lessened around identifying as a survivor, uh, more and more people feel comfortable and supported to come forward 
and to seek um, services to, you know, to engage in, um, in services. And the other, the, the other piece is, uh, you know, COVID, we've noticed an increase in requests for service around COVID. Um, and interestingly, a number of those, and again, I haven't, I haven't done the statistical analysis of our own uh, numbers yet, um, but it seems to me that we're seeing a lot of, of former clients return Wow. Because the extra stress of COVID has re-triggered wow. other forms of trauma that, um, um, you know, have been, you know, have been processed, but are still, you know, just lying uh, beneath beneath the surface. And I just, I, you know, um, and I just want to make one comment mm. uh, about, you know, when you were talking about um, the uh, what do they call it the. Uh, what does Statistics Canada call, is it stage one or phase one or category one sexual Mm -hmm. assault Mm -hmm. is without serious injury. I don't think you can have a sexual assault without serious injury. Mm -hmm. And we, Mm -hmm. we often think that in order, and this is another rape myth that in order for a a sexual assault to be serious, that there needs to be physical injury. Mm -hmm. And I would say there is always traumatic injury mm-hmm. when there is a sexual assault or sexual violence of any kind. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think, you know, when we become more trauma informed, when we understand that trauma is not, you know, a, um, a character defect, but it is, it is an, it is an injury that someone has sustained. Mm-hmm. We begin to relate to survivors in a much different kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, I just had to kind of make that remark because it just seems um, uh, incredible to me that that Statistics Canada would not recognize trauma, mm-hmm. sexualized trauma in any form as an injury, that it has to be like, there has to be some physical evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important point to, to check us on in terms of the information that we've utilized from Statistic Canada. Um, and like you said, coming from a trauma-informed perspective, that's not appropriate language. And I think that's an important thing for both Sweta and I, you know, as, as the interviewees here, but as well for our listeners to know that that really key distinction and that um, it, it's not appropriate to define that as not an injury. Um, so thank you for that. And um, one of the groups that you had mentioned before and, and kind of what you had just mentioned in the last piece was um, around COVID-19. And I know you've <laughs> probably gotten a million questions on this. Uh, so we definitely apologize if this sounds like something you've, you've been asked before, but you know, for our listeners, one of the groups that you had mentioned was Any Violence Association of Canada. Um, and as you know, you had said you're, you've worked with um, and you're very well aware of this, uh, they conducted a national survey during COVID uh, from May 18th to July 20th, 2020. Of course, at one point we would say the midst of COVID-19, but I would say now probably the early stages of COVID-19, <laughs> um, knock on wood. But um, one of the things that was identified with the staff people that were interviewed in that survey 
was that 82% stated that there was an increase um, in violence and that it was more frequent. Um, and so although this is at a national scale, how do you feel these numbers reflect PEI's situation when it comes to uh, sexual violence and COVID-19? Well, you know, I don't think PEI is much different from the rest of the country where, mm -hmm. you know, we're all people dealing with the stress of closed quarters and for folks that are living in um, uh, precarious situations with mm -hmm. uh, other individuals that may be abusive or violent. Um, I mean, when you think about it, it just makes sense that with the added layer of the stress around COVID and you know, being being locked in, um, that people's risk, especially uh, women, and um, uh, sort of the, you know, what we would refer to as marginalized, um, non-mainstream, non-white, mm. uh, uh, not and people on the on the gender binary are much more at risk. Anyways, it just mm. ramps up that risk even even more. Um, and talking to my colleague, uh, Dania uh, O'Malley at mm -hmm. um, Family Violence Prevention Services, uh, same thing is, is that they're finding that there is an increase in um, uh, male perpetrated violence that sometimes is called family violence. <laughs> it's another thing around <laughs> language. We can have another, uh, another discussion about, uh, you know, is how we remove the perpetrators out of language around when we call it gender-based violence, family violence, in, you know, um, uh, uh, intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. And I understand that we're, you know, we're trying to kind of broaden um, the language so that, uh, you know, become more inclusive around um, relationships that are not male-female in particular on that, bi that binary. But what we we wind up doing, as I said, is removing the perpetrators' uh, culpability and responsibility in that. So when you talk about family family violence or domestic violence, it sounds as if there's you know something you know the the walls are closing in and and beating people <laughs> up or something, right? And which is not the case at all, you know. No. Yeah. So um, so I think language is is really important. Um, but to go back to COVID, yeah, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's interesting when you look at the statistics around uh, intimate partner violence, uh, it's not only, you know, closed quarters and additional stress, but, you know, even uh, things like watching professional football, the Super Bowl, for example, there are statistics that show that interpersonal violence or intimate partner violence uh, increases over that period of time because wow. of the aggression that's shown in these, you know, these uh, big, big sporting events. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, people who uh, do this kind of research have also uh, noted that in times of recession, when people are experiencing poverty, there's an additional layer of stress on families, on couples, and, uh, and there is a, a greater, there's an increased risk of interpersonal violence at that time mm -hmm. as well. So, so it's not surprising that COVID would also uh, create that kind of additional stress mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think this is something that, you know, was spoken about before, maybe not on this episode, but, you know, just in general is that really in times of crisis, that's when you look at gender-based violence going up or, you know, I don't know if it's just, you know, someone having just an, an outlet there and choosing to take it out on other people, but it's really sad to see because it feels like you have you know one crisis going on and then there's another shadow crisis going on in the background that people don't really yeah. pay attention to be due to increased aggressivity stress um isolation whatever it is um if we're looking at yeah. sexual violence and sexual violence on pei however um there's another number that jumps to mind which is very alarming you know, Emma mentioned earlier that between 2014 and 2019, um, there was a 122% increase in sexual assaults on the island. In that same amount of time, the percentage of people who were actually being charged in these cases um, has dropped dramatically to 28%, which is the lowest in the country. Um, why do you think PEI has such a high rate of unfounded, you know, for lack of a better term, sexual assault reports? So there's a there's a couple of things going on around that that I just should mention. So during that period of 2014 to 20 was it 18 or 19? 19. 2019. So um, you you may be familiar with uh, Robin Doolittle's article in the Globe and Mail on Unfounded, and part of the problem that was happening there was the way that um, sexual assault cases were being coded. Um, as being unfounded. And um, so during that period of time, there was a lot of um, re-examination of the way cases were coded and the way that statistics were being reported. Mm-hmm. And so that's just that's just a caveat around the the um, what's the word I'm looking for, the uh, accuracy and the validity of those statistics. And I I have a research background because I was an academic for 10 years before I moved here to PEI. So I've done quite a bit of my own research and and statistical analysis. And my preferred way of my, you know, I'm I'm a feminist, no surprise about that. And so I'm a (laughs) feminist researcher. And, um, and so when I did anything with statistics, I also did qualitative Mm. research. So I was a, what you would call a mixed methods Mm -hmm. researcher. And it's because I know that you really need to have narrative around statistics, because the numbers by themselves can, can, you know, um, they can be interpreted many, many ways, mm-hmm. but unless you know the context mm-hmm. and who does the research and what it's meant for, and sometimes even who funds the research mm-hmm. is really important to know. So those are all sort of things to, to take into mind when you look at statistics, like, uh, you know, um, I used to tell my students, you always have to ask the question, who benefits? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so just put that put that out there. So um, so we're talking about why is there not, you know, with the, the numbers of um, reports being increased, why haven't the numbers of uh, charges increased along with them? In fact, they seem to be going the other way. So part of that may be the changes that are being made statistically. So that, that just needs to be said. 
I think the other part of it is, um, and you know, uh, often a lot of this gets laid at the feet of the police because it, you know, and they do need to take some responsibility around this for sure. Absolutely. That um, uh, we've seen many, many cases and we hear stories from the people that we serve that uh, first of all, there's a perception um, and, and I think an accurate one by survivors around what's the point of reporting. And so the reporting numbers themselves are down um, or are so not down, but lower than they, they should be. There are, we still don't think there's more than five to 10% of survivors who are victims, quote unquote, who actually report. It's the numbers are very low. Of those that do report, um, so those numbers that looks like have increased, again, I think because of the Me Too movement, uh, that doesn't mean that there is a, um, a reciprocal uh, positive response from the police to these um, complaints, to these uh, reports that are coming forward. And um, if, you, if you take it one level further, if you just follow me with this, Prince Edward Island is only one of three provinces that has crown approval for charging. So what that means is that the police can do their, their investigations, recommend that charges come forward in sexual assault cases. And if the crown looks at it and says, mm, I don't think so, the charges don't proceed. And therefore those are cleared without charge. And so sometimes, we still refer to those cleared without charge as unfounded. Whereas in actuality, if those cases are properly coded, they should not be coded as unfounded. They should be coded as uh, not enough evidence to proceed mm -hmm. because that is the decision that has that is sometimes made by police but is also, um, and in, in, a, in a number of cases, made by the Crown because they just feel it's not, uh, you know, it's, to use their words, it's a he said, she said kind of situation and, you know, why bother? Because they don't, they don't feel that, because another way that they can, uh, they can code it is that there was, uh, there was, would not, not be a likelihood of um, you know what's the term? There's there wasn't it wouldn't be a, a likelihood of a um, a finding you know of of guilty. So uh, so there are other levels above the police I think that are also responsible for the uh, decreased numbers that actually result in charges and uh, you know perpetrators just basically can walk away. Yeah. So it's shocking. I mean, when you know, when you know all of the different levels that we're actually working against around mm -hmm. rape myths and attitudes and um, the, 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 you know, the, um, I hate to say it, but the lack of will yeah. to work towards justice for survivors, uh, it's, it's disheartening to say mm -hmm. the least. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me wonder whether or not the criminal justice system 
and I'm not the only one that that talks this way, that whether or not the, the criminal justice system as it is right now is the appropriate place for sexual assault cases to be tried. And so we, you know, there's, a, I think, a growing consensus and movement towards looking at um, other ways of finding justice for survivors and so alternative measures. And so we've seen things like domestic violence courts. Those, those cases have ta been taken out of criminal justice and moved into other kinds of courts. We've seen other kinds of diversionary programs for you know, people with addictions and mental health issues. Uh, you know, we're smart people. <laughs> we've been able to figure out how to find appropriate um, access to justice and, you know, and, you know, and not trying adolescence as criminals either, right? So there have got to be other ways that we can figure out how to um, help uh, survivors find the justice that they so desire. It may be that uh, alternative um, or uh, what used to be called restorative and is now more often re referred to as transformative justice mm -hmm. uh, measures mm -hmm. uh, may be the more appropriate way to go. Mm -hmm. um, or a combination of things because, you know, it's, um, it's a bit like trauma therapy. There's not one size that fits all. And it really needs to be a process that is survivor driven um, and not a top down, exclusively top down process. Uh, because the other thing that um, individuals listening to this program may not realize that if you are a victim of a sexualized assault or sexual violence, uh, you are considered a, a witness for the crown. Mm -hmm. Because what in criminal law, law, what is considered to have happened in sexual violence is that the crime is committed against the state or the crown. Oh. Right. And so the survivor becomes a witness to that crime, even though the crime was perpetrated against that individual's self and body. So yeah. you can see why the criminal justice system probably is not... <laughs> you know, the best place in order to, um, to find justice for survivors, because it really, it doesn't become about the survivor as well. It does in that uh, the survivor is often grilled as if they are, you know, guilty of a crime as much as the perpetrator is. Oh my goodness. Right? Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a system rife with a lot of uh, difficulties and barriers for survivors. And so um, I don't think we can, you know, lay it all at the feet of the police. It's all that part of that system, which really uh, encapsulates uh, patriarchal power. Mm -hmm. Because the, 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 uh, present system, legal system that we have was created to protect property, mm -hmm. right? And so when you think about the legacy of colonization, of slavery, of ownership of women and children considered chattel up until, you know, uh, we were deemed persons, not more than, it was, you know, less than 150 years ago, I don't have my dates, you know, right at, at hand, and it might have been even just over a hundred years ago. 
um, you know, we're still very much part of a patriarchal system that sees women and children as um, property. I think the points you made, Rachel, all of them I, I love and I could listen to you for hours. I feel like I'm in a seminar class right now with a, a professor, but like you said, you come from an academic background. So I definitely, uh, I definitely get that. And I think one of the pieces that you mentioned, I know we started talking about police, but then kind of went full circle to talk about, you know, let's look at the system as a whole. Like, I think it's really disappointing you know, on my end, and, and I think for listeners too, to hear that, you know, we know that it's such a challenge for survivors to disclose in the first place. And we know how much of a, a real struggle it is to get to that place if they choose to pursue that, then to then also want to pursue um, further justice and then being, you know, I think, having different layers, like you said, in that system, weighing down on them and really just not allowing that that justice to be fulfilled uh, is really disappointing because I think, you know, we know how much it takes for survivors to be able to get to that stage alone. And then, uh, and the point too you have made about like when survivors are in a situation where it's, um, you know, it's seen as an offense against the crown and not as the person who has survived, um, that could be a re-traumatizing experience in itself too. And, and I think there's, you made a lot of, a lot of really, really interesting points that I think you're right. Like when we talk about just police, it's one piece of the puzzle, but there's a lot of other moving parts there that need to be mm -hmm. considered. And that being said, it doesn't mean that we, you know, don't hold the police accountable. You know, so and that's one of the the uh, the reasons why, um, as a result of of uh, Robin Doolittle's um, article and the really good work that a lot of us in sexual assault centers across the country have been doing for decades, and um, and and by the way, my job here at the PEI Rape and Sexual Assault Center is not the first job I've had <laughs> doing this work. I worked at the Ottawa Rape Crisis Centre for 10 years back in the 90s. And wow. so I feel very well rooted in <laughs> this struggle uh, and being a survivor myself. I mean, wow. you know, I'm part of that very, very large statistic of mm -hmm. women who have experienced a violence, sexual violence um, before the age of 18. Wow. So, you know, um, and so, you know, this is really part of my uh, my healing journey as well. Um, and so, um, so I, I, you know, I just I just wanted to to mention that. But just to go back to say that, um, you know, it's it's not that we, you know, walk away from the police and say, oh well, you're just part of the bigger system, and there's and, you know, there's not to be done. Uh, there's plenty to be done, and mm. uh, as a result of that uh, work that's been done so far. Um, the government of Canada, after Robin Doolittle's uh, expose in the, in the Globe and Mail, uh, called on Statistics Canada and the RCMP, being the national uh, policing uh, service in Canada, to go back and look at their coding and their, you know, their statistics, their reporting, and uh, and to start to work um, on doing case reviews. And so the RCMP are now. Um, 
uh, doing sexual assault investigation review committees across the country. Uh, and one of the uh, and I'm and I sit on one of those that's here in PEI, uh, which looks at the court looks quarterly, which is four times a year at the uh, the files that have been um, come forward. So we look at we're we're fortunate here in Prince Edward Island and that our panel is able to um, to actually review all of the files that have been uh, closed without charge or, or have mm. been. Um, so whether or not they're unfounded or it's because the Crown Attorney has said, um, no, there's not a reasonable chance of us uh, succeeding at, um, you know, winning this uh, this court case. Uh, so we get to look at all of the investigations and and what has happened and give our feedback to the RCMP on areas that we find are, are problematic, including um, investigations that were not, uh, in our view, completed because they forgot to, you know, interview certain um, uh, important uh uh, witnesses mm. um, or, you know, gone to collect evidence or there have been, you know, evidence of bias, mm. uh, you know, whether it's, you know, biases that reflect um, rape myths, a misunderstanding of the way trauma affects the brain or racism. Uh, there's, you know, we've had, um, so we've had the opportunity over the last, uh, I guess, almost two years now to sit at that table uh, mm -hmm. with the RCMP and review those files. And, uh, and across the country, uh, in, in addition to the RCMP, many urban centers are also uh, putting together advocate-based uh, review committees to look at urban police service uh, sexual assault mm -hmm. uh, files as well, which is the next step for us um, in Prince Edward Island. Mm -hmm. Because the... Uh, um, so that's the shocking part of the statistics that you quoted earlier is that we have the highest rate of, you know, cleared without charge or unfounded cases still in the country. And uh, the RCMP's um, unfounded or uh, cleared without charge um, have begun to uh, decrease. Um, and, but the, uh, the urban police services uh, do not have review committees, mm. um, and their um, their rates are still about fifty percent. Wow. So what a what a terrible message that that sends to survivor that they only have a fifty fifty chance of basically wow. being believed. You know that's 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 what they hear when they hear that, and so you know they think so. What's the point? You know why bother? Why would I put myself through that knowing what it, what how potentially re-traumatizing that is, especially when you know you're you know you're getting the message that I don't believe what you're saying is true, or I think that you just have post-sex regret right now, mm -hmm. and so the way that you're trying to you know save face is by you know charging the, or bringing forward a complaint against the other person. So it's those kinds of attitudes that um, are really devastating for um, for survivors to to encounter. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was a really comprehensive, I think, 
expose essentially of the many issues that folks face on PEI here. Um, one piece of the puzzle, you know, that we've been looking at over these last few years really is looking at the impact of colonization as well as, you know, uh, what it means for indigenous peoples to go through sexual violence and how they emerge from that. The Rape and Sexual Assault Center has been working on developing culturally safe healing to indigenous survivors of sexual violence. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project that you are working on? What do you envision for it? And why do you think it's important? Yeah, so you're talking about our braiding sweetgrass program, and uh, this is a program that is supported not only by our, our core funding, but also by the Canadian Women's Foundation. Mm -hmm. And so they were very keen to support us uh, in this vision that we had for this program. Um, part of our mandate through our core funding from the, uh, from the government of PEI uh, is to provide um, services for Indigenous survivors uh, by an Indigenous uh, therapist. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and of course, this is so important because really us, only somebody who understands the culture and has, I think, access to traditional healing practices, services, community, uh, resources, elders, and so on, um, would fully, you know, and that worldview as well, that indigenous worldview and understanding that um, healing and community kind of paradigm uh, really stresses how important it is that it is an indigenous um, person that, that um, uh, holds this position um, as the indigenous therapist. The other reason why we um, were really keen to hire um, this person uh, was because we are already seeing Indigenous folks in our in our service. We're already serving Indigenous survivors, but I think we could do a better job of um, making our services more culturally safe, mm -hmm. um, just by educating ourselves and um, understanding more about Indigenous worldviews and ways of being and healing. And so part of the program is also to provide that, uh, that support and training to existing non-Indigenous staff um, and our board of directors as well, so that we can become a much more um, culturally sensitive and safe space. And I think that that would have ripple effects to everyone that we serve, not just our Indigenous clients, but to um, you know, black people of color, um, to SLGBTQ plus populations, folks that are, are um, you know, newcomers from everywhere, because we have lots of newcomers from, um, you know, all areas of Canada. So I think that it just helps us work our edges a little bit, as I like to say. Uh, you know, sometimes we talk about working the edges of our window of tolerance when we're when we're doing therapy. I think the same for for us because I think, you know, especially those of us that are white and privileged, um, I you know, it's it's easy to forget how smooth a way that white privilege creates for us. And so um, 
I think it takes a, a more effort on our part, especially as a mainstream kind of organization to kind of uh, bring those edges back in, in, a, in an intentional kind of way so that we don't forget um, that um, our, you know, so much of our privilege has gotten us where we are right now. And that uh, one of the most powerful things that we can do with that privilege is to use it in order to um, create opportunities for healing and well-being for people that don't enjoy that privilege. So I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> Absolutely, it did in more detail than I could have envisioned. Um, one saying this reminds me of Rachel. You had mentioned, um, you know, with this particular project, while it is dedicated and targeted at supporting Indigenous survivors you know, this impacts holistically your organization as a whole and, you know, benefits everyone. And a saying it's reminding me of is, you know, tide comes in, all boats rise. And so um, it's really exciting to see that uh, we can do targeted efforts that actually, you know, address the needs of specific groups such as Indigenous peoples who are disproportionately impacted by sexual violence, but also that it benefits everyone. So uh, you remind me of that saying, and, and I think it's a, a positive one. Um, now our last question, Rachel, and this is gonna be a bigger one, so please feel free to take your time with this. Um, you have mentioned throughout the interview a lot of the shortcomings that, that exist with supporting survivors when it comes to um, accessing supports, when it comes to uh, seeking justice, everything that kind of comes with that. What are some of the policies or changes that you would envision moving forward that could address some of those shortcomings? And as you have mentioned before, through a trauma-informed and survivor-centric approach. So I'll work from the ground up on this, this question because um, you know they say intervention is also a part of prevention. And I'm thinking now of our own services and many, many services that I know across Canada. And I'm you know, particularly sensitive to our own Atlantic region. So uh, we're part of the Atlantic Net Network of Sexual Assault Services as well, our centers called ANSAC. Um, and we are all woefully underfunded. We all have incredibly long wait lists. Um, right now, you're looking at probably six months um, with, with PeerSAC to be, be able to see um, uh, a therapist for individual um, support. And I know that um, the, uh, you know, our sister centers in Halifax and Fredericton and St. John's are also in, in very similar circumstances. Um, we're all working with very bare bones. Um, and so um, I know that the at that PeerSAC here on the island really has had to be stripped back to, to focus most you know, um, intently on therapeutic services. We don't have a public education coordinator. We don't have a volunteer program. And those are all really, really important pieces in terms of um, resourcing building resiliency in the community um, and creating, you know, change 
education is so important uh, in creating change. So we do, you know, we do work with uh, Eileen Conboy, who's at the University of Prince Edward Island, um, doing, um, you know, things with her on Consent Week. Uh, we've recently been um, given another grant uh, by the Interministerial Women's Secretariat to um, run the Take Back the Night event that we rejuvenated last year. And it's actually going to be broadened into a full week. Uh, so we'll have a sexual assault awareness week, which is very, very exciting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so, so those pieces are really important for not only giving the message to survivors across the island that they're believed and that they're supported, but also doing that important piece of raising awareness and changing people's attitudes and behaviors. So, um, you know, in, in years past and in, in sort of the, the most historic iterations of Take Back the Night, it was a women's only event, mm -hmm. right? Men weren't even allowed to march. You know, you could stay on the sidelines and cheer us on. And then there's some concessions were made that, you know, you could follow in the back. Um, we've made a very um, uh, uh, intentional decision as the advisory committee for the Take Back the Night to make this an inclusive mm. march. So we welcome people of all genders and, you know, all, um, uh, you know, try to be just as inclusive as possible. People of all, mm. all abilities, um, all, all identities, basically. So that's a really important piece of raising that awareness. And I'm really hoping that um, with the work that uh, our new event coordinator, Rachel Adams, is going to be doing oh, that. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so Rachel's <laughs> uh, really keen, very excited and very energetic and uh, has been talking about finding sponsorship and bringing, you know, people on board. Because I think that when we really start to engage Islanders, um, that's how you really start to create change. So that's moving from sort of grassroots up into the community, which is sort of mezzo, and then you know working with universities. Post-secondary is really important. That's a very vulnerable population. The we'll say 16 to age age 16 to 24, um, especially around Frosh Week, uh, we always see our requests spike September October um, because of the um, you know. The activities that that are very often alcohol fueled as well, um, and uh, and yeah, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done around that. I, you know, I've I've often said that if we can make sexual violence as um, not non acceptable as drinking and driving and smoking in public, I mean, we've been very very excess, successful in um, shall we say, shaming people into better behavior around those those issues? Why can't why can't we do that around sexual violence or just gender, you know, gender based violence in general? There just has to be a zero tolerance peer to peer, and so we need to work with men and boys around that as well. And instead of calling them out, we need to call them in um, instead. And so we're looking at doing that nationally as well. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the Ending Violence Association Canada, we're really looking at those larger organizations like the military, which at the moment 
has got its own scandals around sexualized violence happening right now. So that's an area that needs a lot of work. Um, we're also working with large sports organizations like the Canadian Football League. So the Canadian Football League has um, Ending Violence Association kind of on a retainer right now. We're working as consultants with the CFL. Awesome. The CFL has adopted a zero uh, tolerance policy for uh, um, any kind of gender-based violence. Wow. So they will not hire a player who has a history of gender-based violence. Mm. And if there is an incidence of GBV with one of their players, um, we're called in to kind of do an intervention wow. and, uh, and work with them. So um, that's a really important way of creating that kind of uh, cultural shift because our male uh, athletes are really looked up to, you know, hockey players are next. <laughs> Start with the football. Hockey players, I think, need to be next um, because really those are, you know, those are, uh, you know, men that are held in very, very high esteem by other males in our society. And so when they can begin to hear that message that this is not okay, this kind of behavior, and, you know, we're not only talking, you know, f physical, but language, attitudes, etc. This has all got to stop. So it needs to happen on all levels from the grassroots right through to the community and right up to these large institutions. And we do have a, I must say, a federal government. I mean, there's a lot, you know, there's lots of federal governments that I may not be particularly, you know, happy about. But um, I think the uh, Women and Gender Equality um, Ministry is doing a lot to support this kind of work right now. They've they've just funded a national um, uh, consultation on their action plan to end gender-based violence. They've been supporting sexual assault services and other gender-based violence services during COVID with extra funding. Uh, we have a prime minister who says he's a feminist. I'm not gonna say any more about that, but it was a nice <laughs> gesture. <laughs> So, you know, I, you know, it's, uh, there are pieces that I am taking some hope in, uh, but, you know, there's still a lot, a lot left to do, a lot left to do. And, you know, I'm just thinking back to a lot of the good points you made. First of all, I think, you know, Emma and I were at the Take Back the Night event last year. And I think a lot of what I remember is the energy and the sense of the community, um, you know, right from the Coles building to Victoria Park to, you know, the wonderful performances that happened there. I think that's what I take from it. It was such an empowering event. And, you know, I hope that it helped someone feel better uh, seeing just the outpouring of, of support from the community. Second point I'm thinking of is when you said, you know, make sexual violence as taboo, for lack of a better word, as smoking in public or impaired driving. And I think that also ties really well into your education piece because as of now, the sense of shame that comes with sexual violence often resides with the survivors of the violence as opposed to the perpetrators. So there needs to be kind of a cultural change and an educational piece that comes into play to shift um, you know, societal perspectives to make it that the perpetrators are the ones who kind of are shamed and you know, are afraid to show their face in public. 
as opposed to the survivors constantly being asked things like, what were you wearing? What were you doing there? What did you have to drink? What were, you know, what about your behavior um, excuses this perpetrator doing this? So yeah, I'm just reflecting back on a lot of your points, but I think this is all that we had for formal questions for you today. If you have something else you'd like to add, would be more than glad to hear it as well. Well, I don't know if I have anything more to say, except, you know, when you were talking, uh, Sweta, about that uh, experience of Take Back the Night uh, and how empowering it is, um, you know, it speaks to me of, uh, and, you know, at the risk of sounding maybe a little bit, a little bit schmaltzy, uh, the inherent beauty that's within each one of us, and that includes survivors. Um, and, um, you know, there was... There was elements of joy, of fun, of high energy, as well as I think a great demonstration of appropriately channeled anger and outrage in, you know, in balance. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, women survive and survivors, but and women in general, um, they just amaze me. Right, they just just amaze me with their uh, resilience, and uh, and their beauty, and that you know that that health that's in our system, in order to you know to go towards uh, thriving, which I guess kind of brings me back to where we began with this uh, interview on you know my green things growing out in my potting shed, right, and how much um, joy and satisfaction that I take in watching that new cycle of growth. Um, happen again. And, uh, and I think that's why I keep getting called back to doing this work is that the, you know, the, um, the rekindling of growth and newness in each one of us, especially as survivors, is just so darned inspiring, that uh, it just keeps me going. I feel like a, you know, a little bit like the ever ready bunny when it comes to doing this work is that you you know that energy just recharges me um all the time mm -hmm. so yeah so that's really all mm -hmm. i have to say well thank you so much for sharing this energy with us today and i know you know i've learned a lot but also i feel rejuvenated in a way hearing you speak today rachel i feel you know it's a very empowering moment and you know, this is a very serious topic to talk about, but you do it with such positivity, positivity and we're very grateful to have you on our show. Um, now, we have a second segment after the more formal interview section that we like to call our beer panel. Um, despite the fact that it's called a beer panel, um, typically we take turns recommending beers, um, you know, it can be a recipe, a restaurant, anything to our listeners just to give them something new to try. Um, as our guest this week, we'd like to ask you to go first. What would you like to recommend? Well, I'm not a beer drinking person. Uh, nothing personal against beer. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't suit my palate. But I do love a good cider. Mm. And I have discovered Red Island Cider here mm, on PEI. The best. Which is absolutely fantastic, especially Father Walker's. Mm. Mm. Very, very good cider. So that would be my recommendation to your listeners mm -hmm. is if you haven't tried Red Island Cider yet, give it a taste. Refreshing and delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
you know, that's a really good one. And they're hidden. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the road. It's right beside. They're on Longworth. 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 Yes, yes. They're, yeah. they're, they've got a tiny spot, but they are absolutely delicious. And um, I, I definitely, uh, I'll second your recommendation for, for Red Island. Um, I'm actually going to shift gears with my re recommendation sweater, if that's okay with you. I, um, I typically always find a way to recommend a beer, but I think right now I'm at a loss of trying different ones. I've kind of stuck to the same ones recently. So I'm actually going to recommend um, a, a non-alcoholic beverage. I'm going to go with a cappuccino from Charlottetown's newest cafe, The Gallery. Um, this is a new spot that opened up on, I believe, Great George Street, um, close to the, the Great George Hotel and, and some of those boutiques there. Um, it's a really, really neat spot. It, uh, I think, opened about two or three weeks ago, and um, I've been there about two or three times now, and I've really enjoyed the, the drinks that I've gotten every time, but I was really impressed with their cappuccino. So that's what I'll recommend for today. Awesome. I also don't have a beer to recommend today, so I'm going to go for a cider as well. Um, this one isn't a local brand. It's, you know, from the brand Okanagan, and it's their Harvest Pear flavor cider. Um, the story behind this is, so I'm from Mauritius, and we have this nationally loved pear cider that we call Perona. So obviously, you know, ribbed off from Coronas, and they just kind of did their thing and it's the drink that you'll find at every event be it you know a new year's eve party be it um, a birthday be it you know just a night with family and they have an alcoholic and non-alcoholic version of it obviously since moving to canada it's been kind of hard to find that um, or to find any sort of pear cider but the okanagan harvest pear flavor is kind of the closest I've gotten to finding that cider anywhere in Canada um, over the last six year over the last six years. And you know, as we go deeper into COVID and you start kind of worrying about family a little bit more, it's kind of a little taste of home in PEI. So that's the one I'm recommending today. So no beers today on the beer panel. Right on. I'm excited to try that. Mm -hmm. Sounds delicious. I will give it a try too. And I, uh, I have family in, um, in British Columbia. My uh, youngest child lives out there and we have driven oh. through the Okanagan Valley and it is beautiful. Oh, wow. Really beautiful. So if you ever have a chance, Sweta, that you should put that on your bucket list <laughs> to go back to the source of your pear cider because it's a beautiful area of the world. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I'll add that to the uh, Trans Canada road trip bucket list. Just another spot to check out. And I think Absolutely. this brings us to the end of our episode, folks. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. Um, taking time out of a beautiful sunny Saturday afternoon to sit with us for over an hour. Uh, we really appreciated chatting with you and learning. And thank you so much for bringing such positive energy. Well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed chatting with both of you and I'm raring to get back to my seedlings. <laughs> Send well, us a picture well, of your garden. I will. Absolutely. <laughs> I have to deal with my aphids right now. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, it's been a pleasure speaking and, and learning with you today, Rachel. I, I, I really enjoyed this and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And I know you've got uh, the, the aphids, what I recently today learned what they are. So we'll let you to get back to that and, and thank you again for your time. All right. We'll take care of both of you. We'll see you around. You Thanks. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's all the time that we have for today, folks. Thank you again to Dr. Crowder for joining us today. Now our music, as listeners will most certainly know by now, is from the talented Mr. Shane Pendergast. He has a show coming up at the Trackety Community Center, and that's titled Shane Pendergast, live at the Trackety Community Center. That's Friday, April 30th, 2021, from 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. It's starting to get a bit warm out, but stay safe nonetheless, folks. This has been Dialogue.